0: Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Dr. James Brooks, Melanie Trent-DeShutter Library Director, and I'm delighted to welcome to you, you to your Virginia Museum of History and Culture's online programming. The VMHC acknowledges the Powhatan Confederacy and the Monacan nation that inhabited the land where this museum now stands. We seek to honor that history and to maintain thoughtful relations with those indigenous people and all the tribes of Virginia. Their story is integral to Virginia's past, present, and future. We also wish to acknowledge the generosity of former trustee Anne Worrell, who endowed this lecture series in honor of our former president and CEO, Dr. Charles Bryan. Just to give you some information on some upcoming events here at the VMHC, on Tuesday, December 13th at 6.30 p.m., we will be screening the documentary, Mending Walls, which tells the story of Hamilton Glass's attempts to establish empathy and connection through art in the wake of the murder of George Floyd. Looking ahead to 2023, on January 10th at 7.30 p.m., the VMHC will host a virtual movie night where our team will be myth-busting Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, and all the while making connections to our own extensive collections. Our next uh, lecture, which will take place on January 19th at 6 p.m., will be Michael Lee Pope's talk titled The Bird Machine in Virginia, The Rise and Fall of a Conservative Political Organization. This lecture will be held in person at the BMHC in the Robbins Family Forum. Today's lecture will examine a struggle unlike any other during the American Civil War when the U.S. Army launched its assault on the Confederate Mule Shoe at the Battle of Spotsylvania on May 12, 1864. One Massachusetts soldier would describe the fighting as the death grapple of the war, while a Mississippi counterpart said of that day, I do not expect to go to hell, but if I do, I'm sure that hell can't beat that terrible scene. When the combat had ended in the morning darkness of May 13th, Roughly 17,500 men had been killed, wounded, or captured in fighting that lasted for more than 20 hours. Here to provide a view of that contest from the rank and file is the esteemed Civil War historian, Geoffrey Wirt. Geoffrey has been fascinated by the Civil War since the age of 10, when his fifth and sixth grade school teacher would regale him with stories passed down by local Civil War veterans, namely those of Company A of the 148th Pennsylvania. A former teacher of history himself, Jeffrey is the author of many books on the Civil War, including The Sword of Lincoln, The Army of the Potomac, A Glorious Army, Robert E. Lee's Triumph, 1862 to 1863, and most recently, The Heart of Hell, The Soldier's Struggle for Spotsylvania's Bloody Angle, and the subject of today's talk. Please note that you may visit shopvirginia.org to obtain signed copies of this incredible new book. Please welcome everybody, Jeffrey Worth.
1: Good afternoon, everybody. I'm glad to be here. I wanna thank the museum for this opportunity. Uh, I wish circumstances had been different. I would have been able to come to you in person. I remember, I think on two occasions, I lectured at the museum uh there's uh, a wonderful place to lecture it's also a place where i couldn't do what i do and neither could many other historians who write about the war particularly in the east could do but uh, collections are just great and uh, i know from my long street uh Stuart biographies uh those things uh i really appreciate everything that i ever the help i received and i was very glad to do this um i know questions are going to Opportunity to ask questions, please do. I, you know, I enjoy questions. Uh, hopefully, we, I'll be able to answer them, uh, whatever concerns you may have. If you went into the camps of the set as a background here, if you went into the camps of either the Army of Potomac or the Army of Northern Virginia in Central Virginia in the Rappahannock, Rapid Dan River valleys, uh, you would have found out in the winter of 1864 if you listen talk to them or you read their diaries subsequently or their letters both sides thought that the war was going to come to an end this year it's 1864 and both sides thought that their cause is going to prevail in the forthcoming struggle interestingly too if you read some of their comments they understood that this time it's going to be different uh, in the sense that the Army of the Potomac or the Union cause is led by a new general, a hero of the West, Ulysses S. Grant, and he is going to face uh, Robert E. Lee. Um, The Confederates thought, too, that finally Grant is going to get up to the A game. He is going to meet the very best army in the Confederacy, and he's going to find it very different from what uh, he found in the West. And we know that on May the 4th, 1864, The Army of Potomac crossed the Rapidan River at Eli's and Germana Fords, and we know too today that uh, the war changed. Uh, If you go back to 1862 and the end of the uh, Seven Days Campaign, from that point on, except for uh, brief periods of time, Robert E. Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia dictated the contours of campaigns. Lee had the strategic or operational initiative in the East, and he would exploit that, that he had. On May the 4th, 1864, that changed because from that point forward, Ulysses S. Grant is going to dictate the terms of the struggle, as he would say afterwards that he grabbed the army of Northern Virginia by the throat, uh, and from uh, which would lead him, of course, consequently, Uh, Down to Appomattox and the end of the war, but initially the confrontation occurs in the wilderness, in a devil landscape. To many of the men who fought there, Uh, the Confederates had the advantages as far as uh, artillery and that because the Union strength was negated, and the campaign would last for the battle would last for two days. as We're well aware. Tactically, the Confederates prevailed in this, but. To Grant, there would be no turning back. And so on May the 7th, he directed the army south towards Spotsylvania Courthouse and the uh, Crossroads Villages and the road to what Grant saw as Richmond. I think of put it in perspective to the Army of the Potomac, uh, an interesting occurrence occurred at midnight on May the 7th around there, Grant and George Meade and their staffs were riding out Owens Turnpike. They were approaching the intersection at Brock Road and the men stopped. There were mostly men in the fifth Corps of the Army. Uh, Woods were on fire, not burning too much, but they were bright enough to, uh, you know, the scene could be seen. Uh, Grant and they were waiting to see which way Grant turned. If he turned left, they're going back across the river, which had been the pattern for two years. Or if he turned right, it would be towards the south. Grant, of course, turned right, and the men cheered him. Uh, they have been waiting a long time for this. And they moved to and becomes a race then for Spotsylvania Courthouse. And the Confederates are going to prevail literally in the morning of May the 8th, within minutes of reaching Laurel Hill before uh, the uh, Union Army. And again, this would be the Fifth Corps were able to uh, charge. And the Confederates repulsed him. And throughout May the 8th, the armies are going to converge on Spotsylvania Courthouse. That night, late at night, well, it approached, it was clearly dark, uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of about 11 or 12 o'clock, Edward Johnson's division would arrive on the battlefield and they would extend the Confederate line farther to the right towards the Fredericksburg Road. They come to a slight rise in the ground and Johnson halts him and orders his men to build breastworks, fieldworks. That's the other thing that's going to change after the uh, with the beginning of this campaign. The nature of the conflict, the nature of the fighting is going to be from behind breastworks for both sides, as we all well know, going through the whole Petersburg campaign and that. But here at Spotsylvania, where we really see them in extensively for the first time. Now, Lee's army had built, Field works during the mine run campaign in November of sixty-three. Uh, Saunders Field, they had field works during the wilderness fighting, but here these field works are are going to be extensive and for miles in length. Johnson's men, of course, were bone tired, and they simply ignored the order. Uh, so the next morning, uh, on May the 9th, they start to build these field works. They are going to work on them until the through the uh, into the morning at least of the eleventh of May, uh, when they were finished. And what happens, of course, as the works are extended, they form a salient or soldiers soon called a horseshoe, but more familiarly, we know it as a mule shoe. The eventual works were four feet high. Uh, they had dug a trench two feet deep. They put a head log in uh, so they could fire uh, through the gap between the head log and the works. They were, uh, uh, you know, uh, trees and uh, mud they also built a, a, a step so they could stand in the steps behind them and if you go there today the outline of the, some of these uh uh trenches are there now of course over the time they've been built worn away and there's an outline and others uh that but what behind them they p- built traverses uh extensive network of traverses to prevent uh flank fire now, give a good example of what that would mean. If the eastern face of the salient is overrun, the attackers could fire into the apex of the salient or the western side of the salient into the backs of the defenders. Traversers were designed, and they were usually like 12 to 15 feet in size. They were three-sided as far as we know. Soldiers called them hog, hog pens, uh, but there's no trace of them. We don't know how many there were The action that we're going to talk about, a a considerable amount of that action would be with one side trying to take the traverses from the other side uh, throughout most of the fighting. Robert E. Lee joined Johnson's division and Richard Ewell, Second Corps commander, in the salient on the morning of May the 9th. When Lee looked at this and saw it was a salient, he said, uh, this is a wretched line. There's no way we can hold it. And Ewell and Johnson argued well, General, if we give up the salient or the hot slide uh, uh, rise and ground, the Yankees are going to be able to move artillery there and uh, hammer the other sections of our line. Lee reluctantly agreed to hold the salient. But he said, what we w- we have to do, we have to bring in cannon to support the infantry. Now Johnson's division numbered about uh, 4,000 men uh, with the casualties sustained in the wilderness. To its left or western flank of his Robert E. Rhodes' division lengthened the line towards the first corps. On the right, some units of the uh, A.P. Hill's third corps which was now temporarily under the command of Jubal Early because Hill was ill. And so Lee They brought in 29 cannon uh, to uh, defend the infantry in the salient. The Federals knew that the Confederate works were there. They did not know how extensive they were. They did not know how many artillery uh, pieces were in the salient. They did not know how many Confederate infantry defended them. They didn't even know the shape of them. But on May the 10th, Colonel Emory Upton of the Sixth Corps, brigade commander, approached his uh, corps commander, division commander, and then the corps commander, Horatio Wright, who had taken succeeded because uh, John Cedric was shot by and killed by a sharpshooter the day before, with a proposal to attack these Confederate works. And what Upton proposed was attack force in depth on a narrow front. In other words, give me a dozen regiments, <laughs> I will put him in four lines, three regiments across, and we will charge the, these Confederate defenses. <clears throat> it reached, uh, Lee and Grant and they gave approval to it. And so late on the evening of, well, you know how the armies work. Uh, they made the plans. It was supposed to be at five o'clock with, uh, conor- coordinating the assaults again in Laurel Hill. Uh, a second corps division, under Gershon Mott, was supposed to support Upton's attack force, but the attack does not go forward until roughly 6:30. They have to cross 150 grounds, of, uh, uh, 150 yards of open ground, and they will hit what's called Doyle's Salient, which was a smaller salient uh, that protruded out from the main salient on the western face of the Mule Shoe, was named for George, George Doyle's and his North Carolinians. The attack was very successful. The front line penetrated through the salient into the main works. They overran the Confederate battery and behind them came the other three lines and they started to branch it out. But suddenly they became jammed up. And in turn, with the interior lines, Confederate brigades started to counterattack. The fighting would last for about an hour and eventually Upton's force was driven out of the uh, salient and back across the ground, which they crossed. Today, you can follow the path of that in the uh, woods, uh, which they marched on to get there and where they formed up. When Grant heard of the initial success of this, and another thing, Grant starts to believe and he will write this or noted, (coughs) excuse me, that He believed that Lee's army, all these attacks and all this fighting and all these casualties, that maybe the army in Northern Virginia could be teetering a little bit uh, in their battlefield prowess. And so when he heard about this and the initial success, he decided that why don't we attack this position on a massive scale? So on May the 12th, they went out and uh, Grant ordered Meade to assign the 2nd Corps roughly 20,000 men to the attack force. And that attack force uh, would be led by Winfield Scott Hancock. If you asked any member of the 2nd Corps what was the best infantry corps in the Army, they would tell you point blank it was the 2nd Corps. And indeed, they at this point, certainly they were. Hancock's not himself. Uh, the wound that he incurred at Gettysburg on July the 3rd still bothers him. In fact, surgeons would be removing pieces of the bone from his wound, even as this campaign would progress. The decision was made then to attack him on the morning of May the 12th. Um, The the important thing to realize with this, again, uh, though this attack is going to go forward, Grant wanted this attack to go forward, they still do not know how, the shape of the Confederate defenses. They still do not know the defenders. They do not know the number of cannon in there. In the meanwhile, late on May the 11th, late afternoon, Robert E. Lee is in the salient. He's back there again. And he'd been there during Upton's attack. He comes back and the salient, if you get an idea, it's about one half a mile deep from the apex. The apex is three, roughly 300 yards across at its widest point, And that would be at the Woodshaw farm uh, owned by Neil McCool. And it's about three, four quarters of a mile wide. So there is a reserve line that would be built uh, uh, one half mile from the apex, uh, not an extensive line, but it's a reserve line. And behind that was the Edgar Harrison home. Uh, where served as uh, Ewell's headquarters. Lee received a dispatch from his son, Rooney Lee, who's a cavalry commander, saying there's a lot of activity on the Fredericksburg Road. It appears in Lee's judgment that the, maybe the Army Potomac once more is going to do what they did from the wilderness, and they are going to uh, move towards uh, Richmond and try to uh, steal a march on the Army of Northern Virginia. Lee decides, and Gordon Ray, and you probably many of you read Gordon Ray's uh, w- uh, excellent five-volume series on the Overland Campaign. He would say this is the greatest misjudgment of Lee during the campaign. He decides that to pre- to overtake them. If that's the case, we're going to have to pursue them. So he orders the twenty-nine cannon out of the salient uh, because there's a very narrow track that they came into and to make it uh, expeditiously. Uh, They wanted to get them out of there. Johnson argued and so did Rhodes that they could keep their infantry there. They don't wanna disturb them, uh, you know, overnight. They'll stay there until the morning. And so 29 cannon are removed. They are replaced by two batteries of eight cannon. Uh, So the main argument Lee had for defending the salient is now gone uh, and the amount of cannon to defend the infantry are small. During the night, the Federals will march to the John and Elizabeth Brown home. It's about three quarters of a mile north of the apex here. They will form. uh, It'll be the rendezvous point for the 20,000 men in the uh, uh, second Corps. What's interesting. It was a terrible night. Rain had already started to fall. And uh, Francis Barlow, who, is an excellent uh, uh division commander he will he tells the guy to make sure you are you going in mm-hmm. the right direction because if you're going the wrong direction we'll have to walk march around the world and come back to where we wanted to be uh and it was the right direction now when they get there hancock brings in the three division commanders gershom mott is not one of them uh it's uh, david Burney and john gibbon and Francis Barlow, and they're in the Brown House. They, they know that the sailing, there's a White House, at least that's what they're told. Uh, Confederate skirmishers had prevented them from getting close. So they bring in a colonel who was in Mott's division uh, on May the 10th, and they had advanced a very short distance. They not, really had not seen much. And he sketched what he thought was the, the, the Confederate position. Francis Barlow will say later that we were simply lucky to hit the Confederate mule shoe. The attack was supposed to go forward at four o'clock in the morning. Uh, interestingly, during the, during the night, uh, Johnson had received word that uh, something's going on north of us. It appears that the enemy is preparing for an attack. He informs you, you will, order back the artillery, but they're not going to start back until the morning. Uh, Skirmishers are out there. Also union bands played music through the night, uh, uh, heard by uh, the Confederates uh, in the mule shoe and the skirmishers. And the skirmishers were a couple hundred yards north of the apex along the uh, Willis Landrum farm lane. That's still there today. All the houses I talk about are gone. Uh, Anyhow, with the rain and the heavy fog sets in, the attack does not go forward until about 4.30 a.m., 4.35, and the Federals will charge. And, of course, the main, the first hit is going to be in the eastern face uh, by Barlow's division. He had stacked his four brigades, two brigades across. The other three brigades, uh, uh, Gibbons, well, Bernie's up front, Gibbon is a reserve, and then Mott. Uh, they're going to be in linear formation we're familiar with and they just collapsed the uh mule shoe uh estimates are that uh uh, well confederates are overrun they hit a weak brigade uh, because they were in this most of the regiments of the skirmish line uh in the initial attack they probably bagged upwards of three thousand men of johnson's division and they are in a mass there's uh, the the federal Marlowe said, we lost all control of our men. They're cheering. I mean, they smashed through uh, Lee's army teeters, if you will, certainly on a possible destruction. And all he had left at the moment was the division of John Gordon. Uh, and in that sense, the Confederates were very fortunate. John Gordon, as we know, was an excellent officer. He commanded Early's divisions temporarily, since early had been promoted temporarily to lead the third Corps, He will counterattack initially with the brigade of Robert Johnston and Johnston will be driven. he will drive forward towards the Eastern face and, and and hit Barlow's men and the fighting will begin there. His other two brigades of Clement Evans and John Hoffman, Gordon shifts to go there in front of the Harrison house, South of this reserve line, uh, They form, prepare to counterattack. Lee rides up. Gordon thinks later that Lee wanted to lead the attack, but he convinced them that, you know, the men will do what you want to do. And uh, a sergeant in one of the Virginia regiments turned the horses around, a traveler around, and he's not there. And the Jordan men will prepare to charge. I'll read a quote. I think it's an excellent quote from a historian. He was in the 63rd Pennsylvania. This he would write after the war. When the Union men charged, it was with heads erect, shoulders squared, and thrown back, and with a firm str- stride. But when the Johnnies charged, it was with a jog trot in a half-bent position, and though they might be met with heavy and blighting volleys, they came on with that pertinacity of bulldogs, filling up the gaps and trotting on with their never-ceasing kai until we found them face-to-face." And on this morning, they found the Federals, this mass of Federals face-to-face at the reserve line of works. And the two brigades, of Evans's Georgians and Hoffman's Virginians, they are going to stop the federal attack, stop the penetration, and drive them back into the heart of the salient towards, and the men would refer to the, the main works as the original line of works. What also happens on the western face and further down the eastern face, uh, Rhodes' men on the Eastern face, James Lane's brigade of the third corps they're going to stop the penetration there. And what we have now is a stalemate and that stalemate is going to define the struggle that's going to occur in the meal shoe for the next, uh, roughly 18 to 20 hours in turn, Lee would order in six additional brigades. You're probably familiar with some of them if you're any uh familiar with Colin Battle's Alabamians, and ramschers North Carolinians, William Warford's Georgians, uh Nathaniel Harris's Mississippians, Samuel Gowan's South Carolinians. there are uh, Abner Perrin's uh Alabamians, one after another until pro- roughly, remember the tackles goes forward about 435 you're looking at Gordon's initial counterattack somewhere between five and 530. And so for the next two and a half to three hours, these Confederate brigades are going to charge into the salient and, and grab sections of the works, uh, original works. They're going to fight uh, for the traverses really literally, they're going to claw their way forward from traverse to reverse, uh, in some of the actions. Most of it rapidly is going to be the worst of all this. And uh, it was said later as one of them, as a soldier in the 17th Maine would write, and I quote, all around the salient was the seething, bubbling, roaring hell of hate and murder. Uh, A South Carolinian, uh, Lieutenant James Caldwell would write, and I quote, the question became pretty plainly whether one was willing to meet death, not merely to run the chances of it. For the Confederates, they're trapped. The the survival perhaps of the army of Northern Virginia is going to depend on how well they are going to hold the ground. Lee would order almost from the outset of these attacks, he will order with well, Johnson's uh, fugitives, other troops, they're going to build a a line of works farther to the south, maybe about three quarters of a mile south of the Asalian apex. And they are going to, but for the Lee's army to hold these Confederate troops in the army in Northern Virginia are going to have to stay there. You, I, you know, you, as an historian, I have dealt with this attack, uh, you know, in different books, uh, but when you, you deal with it you don't go into the depth that you find when you decide to write about it and i found as i wrote about it and got further into my research and the depth of this the fighting is just staggering it is simply staggering i mean we're looking at men you know they would they'll stick their bayonets through the the breastworks into the other side uh at one point, they said the federal dead outside the works on the apex were stacked almost as high as the breastworks. Uh, men would leap on, on both sides, uh, Union and Confederate. They would leap up on top of the breastworks and comrades would handle them, hand them up loaded rifles and they would fire right down into the faces of the enemy until they were shot down. Uh, I know one who survived, he was a Vermonter Knowles He'll, he'll end up winning the medal of honor, but he actually survived it. And some accounts say that he fired dozens of rounds without being hit. It's this way the whole time. As it was said to you earlier, uh, one of them says the death grapple of the war for the union soldiers. And uh, they are going to be able to rotate out. Some of them, uh, the sixth Corps are going to come in. Upton's brigade is going to be sent into the very heart of it towards the West angle of these works. Uh, uh eventually a brigade, uh, Crawford's division of the 5th Corps, some of them will get into the fight. In all, from near you can calculate, again, numbers, uh, you know, union numbers are fairly good. Again, all these uh, units have sustained casualties in the wilderness and early stages of Spotsylvania. But there, in total, there was probably about 38,000 federal soldiers who are going to be in the struggle for the mule shoe on the Confederate side, roughly 17,000. And that includes Johnson's men. So when you look at that, and if you uh, subtract that, the other brigades, the nine brigades that are going to be part of the counterattacking force, uh, they are going to be, they're going to face odds of two and a half to three times their numbers throughout this fighting. There are many heroes. uh, uh, Well, One of the outstanding heroes of this struggle is going to be uh, uh, like Barlow and that on the other side, uh, Bernie and Gibbon to the extent, but they lose control. And so it becomes a struggle for regimental commanders, even brigade commanders lose control, not extended division commanders. But it comes down to ultimately privates, corporals, sergeants and lieutenants and captains, you know, majors and colonels on both sides. But one of the critical heroes on the Confederate side was Robert E. Rhodes uh rhodes is going to be the one where these as these brigades are being sent in uh by yule or lee uh they're going to order to report to rhodes and rhodes is going to uh, funnel them in or direct them to where they had to go and fight around the west angle which becomes the bloody angle in this fight uh you're going to see harris's mississippians and uh McGowan's south carolinians McGowan is wounded earlier in the struggle. Uh, he's a big man. As he, as he goes to the rear, he encounters Lee, and Lee asks him, and he said, General Lee, I'm wounded. And Lee says to him, well, General McGowan, I'm, I'm not surprised. You're the biggest man, and you ride the biggest horse in this Army, and uh, that you're wounded is not surprising to Lee. And uh, But his South Carolina Mississippians are going to bear the struggle around the mule shoot it about 6 p.m. orders come down to the Confederates that they are going to, before that, they are going to be withdrawn. Well, 6 p.m. comes and they're not being withdrawn because the line's not finished and they are gonna struggle. Thunderstorms roll in, the rain never really ceased, but thunderstorms roll in in the early evening. Men are gonna fall in the trenches If their comrades do not notice them, there's a possibility. Some of them we we think drowned uh, or others were piled up on top of them. Uh, There's one case in the North Carolina regiment, no excuse me, in the South Carolina regiment, I think it was the first South Carolina, a young uh, soldier was killed and is lying on the breastworks and nearby his father sees him. He goes to his son and as he's tending to his son, Uh, He is killed. Uh, And there's these throughout this whole fighting uh, that nothing compares to it. Um, You can argue that maybe it's for the combatants. It's the worst. It's certainly the worst day in the the Civil War. Now, there are terrible places not to dismiss any of these terrible places. uh, You know, the cornfield, Antietam. We know we talk of cold harbor and in the west there's the hornets nets or shiloh there's Kennesaw mountain you can name them but nothing because of the duration of the fighting and the proximity of your enemy nothing in the civil war compares to it i'm not a anywhere close to an authority in world war one world war Two, other ones I, I i'm not sure that any of our uh men in those wars or other wars korean would fight sustained combat for maybe 20 hours where your enemy is a rifle uh, length away from you in a lot of places. But there's certainly nothing during the Civil War that compares to the struggle for the Muleshoe. Eventually, about 3 a.m. on the 13th, orders come down for the Confederates to withdraw. And so silently, uh, the troops are pulled out uh, regiment by regiment, the Federals really never noticed him leaving, uh, by all accounts. Uh, one of them would write, and I will tell you, he said, and I quote, we look like a lot of painted devils. We could hardly tell one another apart. Uh, and they, they will f- fall back behind this new reserve line of works that uh, Lee had, had built. Uh, there, they would most of the men just simply collapse to the ground. Some of them will uh, seek food, uh, some kind of... Whatever they can get, the next morning, may the or the same morning. Excuse me. Uh, once daylight comes, the Federals realize that the mule shoe has been abandoned. Uh, details are going to go into the mule shoe. Orders come down to find out where the Confederates are. So uh, they start to advance. Uh, troops from the Second Corps will go down. They will encounter the new line of works. They will report them as and. You know they they attempt to some show force, but they're quickly uh, forced back, and they will report that. Meanwhile, within the mule shoe uh, burial details, of the federal army starts the process of removing wounded and the dead from the mule shoe, and they will finish that work on the 14th. That later that day, the Confederates go in, and they will start to bury. Uh, their, com- their comrades, ones that have fallen. Uh, the Woodshaw farm uh, estimates are perhaps well, we don't know for sure. Uh, but certainly there were hundreds of graves uh, surrounding the McCool house. By the way, uh, Neil McCool had three Spencer sisters, they stayed in the house throughout the fighting. Uh, they were in the, they, the cellar. Uh, but when they would wake up and on the 13th and 14th realize what and then see their, their farm, that way through the years. And what's interesting about this? Well, I, I should have mentioned it's, it's famous, many you know about, about midnight on the morning of the 13th, uh, a red Oak tree, several yards behind the West angle, bloody angle uh, was sawed off from the rifle fire and musketry and fell injured some South Carolinians. Uh, the stump that was left, it was about five foot high in eight, May of 1865, uh, Federals come back, are passing through on their way back to Washington. Here, the locals realized that this stump probably was something important. And so the owner of the hotel, Spotsylvania Hotel Sanford, he had hid that in a shed Well, they asked uh, Nelson Miles, who was in the attack, uh, saw it, where was this stump and uh, a local confided to him that it was in the sheds. So they got the stump and they took it back and it was put placed in front of the war department. There is an account from the 1870s that if you walked into the war department in Washington, there were two stumps from Spotsylvania at the entrance. Uh, there's no record other than that. Uh, that's the famous stump of course is with the Smithsonian. uh, National Museum of American History today. What is also interesting about this place, we're all familiar with Gettysburg, we're familiar with Antietam, Eastern battlefields or Western battlefields, but particularly veterans that come back for reunions. They don't come back to the Muleshoe. On uh, 1912 memory serves, or it it might be, no, excuse me, 1914, the 15th new jersey comes back and they have a monument there today they meet some georgians they captured a uh, flag and they exchanged the flag that was another one confederate soldiers would come back uh but no, there was no reunions this was a place they wanted to forget in many ways um in early night and by the way visitors come back uh but they were particularly northerners in fact the ground eventually a northerner a banker in philadelphia bought the ground around Millshoe, tried to save it you know and uh but southerners would not go to it and they asked one guy asked the confederate veteran why and he said well we don't want to go back to these places and in early about 1904 1905 memory serves me a fellow from north ohio came and he uh he toured the area, you know, Chancellorsville Wilderness, ended up at the Muleshoe, ended up standing at the Bloody Angle, and it, and he said to him, this must have been an awful place. And the Confederate veteran who had served as his tour guide said, no, this was the heart of hell. And, and in all senses, it was the heart of hell. Uh, hell is a common word in all their accounts uh, of this battle. And as it was noted earlier, and I'll just, of the... Casualties 17,500 killed, wounded, and captured. It's the bloodiest single day uh, between uh, July 3rd, 1863, and Appomattox Courthouse. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much for that really fascinating and often quite poignant talk, Jeffrey. Um, we have a few questions uh, and comments from members of the audience, so I'd just like to read them to you. And uh, we'd really appreciate hearing uh, more thoughts. So uh, one, one viewer asks, what was different about the experience of the New Jersey veterans, which you just discussed, which? Um, you know, sort of made them want to return to that battle. Was it something, did did they have a particular triumph there or was it, um, uh, you know, a particularly remarkable experience? Was there an act of heroism or something that drew those New Jersey veterans as opposed to others back to the site?
1: Not in particular, I can't, you know, I can't say why necessarily they wanted to come back. Well, they ended up in correspondence veterans, you know, they would do that occasion. They were six core, but then they were right up to, uh, they went in, uh, as I said, the six core troops go in and in fact, Horatio writes with them, uh, at a point, uh, and, uh, they go in Well, he's back, but, uh, they're going to go in, uh, right around the, the apex and the, and the West angle, the bloody <laughs> angle. Uh, so not nothing specifically. Uh, they fought like most union troops did and they would be there for hours. Uh, the rotation would be initially from both sides, you know, because the sixth Corps came in rather early as far as the fight goes. I think the initial uh, unit goes in uh, probably not remembering quite around nine o'clock, mm-hmm. you know, because uh Hancock asked for support right away. And so they piled him in. And so that's, that's why, but nothing in particular that I can recall the, why they wanted to go back except evidently, Veterans from the Georgians and uh, uh, the New Jersey ended up uh, corresponding. Of course, they had a flag. So, yeah,
0: absolutely. Um, Somebody else asks, uh, it sounds like a large portion of both armies were engaged at the Battle of Spotsylvania. So how did their experiences and the fact that this touched many, so many soldiers in both armies, how did it influence the conduct of both armies going forward for the rest of the war?
1: Well, that's a very good question. I, I guess the best example initially would be in Laurel Hill. You know, that's where the initial encounter occurred. Uh, they were Fifth Corps troops uh, that would assault uh, Governor Warren. By the way, Warren already starts to irritate Meade and Grant because he's starting to, from his experience in what happens at Laurel Hill. Uh, He is very reluctant, and he will be again on May the 12th to continue to attack. But more importantly than Warren's reluctance, you see on May the 12th, well, they attack on May the 8th, they attack on May the 10th, and they attack on May the 12th at Laurel Hill. And why I chose this, because it's indicative of what's going to transpire in the Fifth Corps was the Union Iron Brigade. Union Iron Brigade unquestionably, in my judgment, was the finest Union brigade in the Army of Potomac, certainly up to and and through Gettysburg. But at Gettysburg the casualties were 67% of their command. They come to they still have that, you know, they're the damn black hats to the Confederates. They had those hardy hats. They will go forward in the assault on Laurel Hill, and they'll go so far. There's like an invisible line that forms in Laurel Hill and the Union troops, including the Arab Brigade, they're not going any further. they go to ground. Mm -hmm. And you are, this is starting, enough's enough. You keep asking and asking, and these frontal assaults already, they see what they result in. And it's the same way, you know, but particularly for the Union soldiers, because they're going to be the one. Well, remember we look at Cold Harbor, you know. Then we're going to go to the early days of Petersburg, and men are going to do the same thing. And this is what a, this is a key pattern as far as the rank and file goes. Because these breastworks start to become increasingly complex. And if you're a gifted artillerist, in the Army of Potomac had Henry Hunt, and less to be kind to Henry Hunt, put it this way: if you wanted to create a, and he does a Gettysburg if you want to create hell on a battlefield, just let Henry Hunt, yeah, he'll do it for you. And, uh and it, it's all happened. So it's, a, I, I, it's a very, very good question. I think an astute question and I hope that uh, they understand this starts to be the pattern and these and these veterans have seen it and they're no, I mean, when, when the air brigade goes to ground, you have a problem. And uh, that's what it was. And I think that, same way you know but it's because of the starting the extensive use of breastworks it's suicidal
0: yeah absolutely absolutely jeff and um i, I guess this is sort of a linked question um, someone else has asked um obviously this battle had national significance and was covered widely in the newspapers and in the illustrated press did it? Do you know if it had reverberations internationally, which may have also, um, you know, even even influenced military thinking up until the First World War?
1: Well, I think what the entire overland campaign and into Petersburg, the army is going to look at that. You know, mm-hmm. I Emory mean, Upton's going to be one of those men who looks at it tactically, uh, but it, I don't know. I can't answer that internationally. I, I don't know that for sure. I would assume that they're going to study us as much as we studied them. Uh, but this is the pattern. And, of course, it becomes, well, the pattern in World War One, which is a war that uh, in many ways is incomprehensible. Uh, the slaughter that occurred. I mean, we talk about 17,500 killed, wounded, and captured. What, on the first day of the Somme, the British lost 60,000 men? Mm-hmm. Something like that. Yeah. So you you know, and we talk about our bloodiest day in our history is Antietam. And we know Gettysburg is three days and fifty-one thousand casualties. Uh, but this is the pattern of war until men start to eat. Though it's interesting though, know, I remember in the famous counterattack by Longstreet at the Wilderness on May the sixth, he does he does it as a heavy skirmish line. He already understands that if you go shoulder to shoulder. You're going to have problems and also they're going into the wilderness in the mm-hmm. woods but there's already men thinking about how things are changing but yet then we go into this pattern it's going to well until april the 2nd 1865 right when the federal family penetrate lee's lines at uh, at petersburg and again it's frontal assault against fort-
0: fortifications
1: so yeah
0: abs- abs- absolutely um so somebody else asks the the stump that you mentioned that was on display in the in the War Department um, is is that the one that's held in the Smithsonian? Is it, is it still held there today?
1: Yes, it is. And I, as I said, I, I found an account. Um, and for any of you are wanting to do research, what is wonderful today, of course, is the internet. And what they have also done is digitized newspapers. Many of the things I uncovered were well, like my the name of the book. I would cover that from an Ohio newspaper. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think I have uh, 100, roughly 170 newspapers in my bibliography. And those things we, you, that, you couldn't, a historian can go to all the places that you are nowadays. So I just want to mention that. Why there, one account said there was two stumps there, both from Spotsylvania, but that's the only account I ever heard or read about. Maybe somebody else has seen it, but these stumps, that Nelson Malz retrieved from that uh, outbuilding at the Sanford
0: Hope. Yes, that's the stump that's in the Smithsonian today. That's correct. Mm-hmm. And, and Jeff, you, you obviously mentioned it then, just the, the sheer massive material which you were able to bring to bear on this project. Um, and of course, much of that would have been soldiers' accounts where they're trying to, you know, sort of process and recount their experiences there to friends and family at home. Um, but I'm curious, were there, were there soldiers that sought to cover and sanitize those experiences, maybe letters that you read where you were surprised that they maybe didn't go into the same detail that you had been generally used to encountering in an attempt to sort of comfort and reassure family members at home?
1: Well, that's always been true of Civil War soldiers. Um, in turn, though, they always wanted to make a point that, you know, we're in the fighting, uh. The reputations of regiments were critical back home. Uh, you read that time and time again. It's uh, like, for instance, take the Iron Brigade. They were the Westerners. In the, you know they're As they said, they were men from way down beyond the sunset. That was an expression of the time. And they had to prove themselves, not only in the Army, but back home. And we figured that helped to contribute to their valor. But many of them were frank. Now, a lot of accounts, like the Richmond papers at the time, they had correspondence there. And they're going to give, they're going to give graphic accounts, you know, end of May into June of the fighting. Uh, but soldiers would write that. But they were they were depending who they wrote to. If they wrote to their father or brother. That'd be different than they're writing to their mother or their wife. Uh, but uh, many of the accounts subsequently come out. Some of the worst accounts, <clears throat> excuse me, come out in regimental histories. Mm-hmm. Like uh, I quoted John Haley very famous memoir, 17th Maine, that's a memoir where he said the boiling, seething cauldron cauldron, you know, uh, that comes out. But it depends who they were writing to. And that's, I think, true of most Civil War soldiers. Uh, you don't want to scare your wife to death. <laughs>
0: so you try to sanitize as much as possible. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's something we must always be careful of when we're looking right. at those letters is that we need to realize that they were communicating to specific individuals, and there would be information that they'd either want to withhold or, you know, sort of emphasize uh, to those to those recipients. Um, uh, another question um, relates to your your source material again. Obviously, much of what you've discussed sort of relates to written accounts. But do you use uh, visual culture in your study? Was this was this uh, depicted in Harper's Weekly? Did soldiers attempt to depict it?
1: Not no, not really. Uh, there were well, some of the sketches that are made at the time are in the book. Mm-hmm. You know, and they they show you again though that they're drawn from distances. Uh, the cover of the book is a very famous painting for Thurstrop. Uh, you know, the, the University of North Carolina Press, who uh, did a, well. It's a, I'm very pleased with them. <laughs> I should plug them because I really the the cover of the book was their choice. I agreed to it. It certainly is that good um uh, but not not as a whole there wasn't a lot of that there are some in in the the ones that were if you want to say contemporary in the sense of that uh they're in the book uh most of the like all historians you rely in manuscripts letters diaries like i said with the museum the historical Virginia historical society's collections are just outstanding if you're going to write in the army of northern virginia you're going to write you're going to see the virginia historical society <laughs> collections uh no, and uh, and then regimental history. you, you got to take them with a grain of salt. Certainly, mm-hmm. you know, some men become more heroic twenty years after the fighting than they were, and, and others. in the, you know, like Caldwell's history of McGowan's uh, Brigade, Greg McGowan's Brigade. Very, he's frank. You know, he, as he mm-hmm. said, this is, you're, gonna, you're you're meeting death. You know, you're gonna, you know, you're not. Maybe we're gonna be shot. You know, you when you went in there, you figured you're gonna be shot. And uh, that kind of thing. So yeah, but the, you can't beat the manuscripts, or diaries at the time, and the newspaper accounts that will occur.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm sure UNC Press will be very happy for that plug, and we're certainly very happy for you uh, emphasizing the strengths of our collections here. Um, the the last question that I guess that we have time for, um, and I'm I'm sure you're taking a break after all the work that you've done on this this uh, publication. Uh, but what's next for you?
1: <laughs> That's a very good question. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. Uh, and the reason I say that is there's so many young, gifted historians. Uh, and thankfully, the Civil War still appeals to people. It's, it's our greatest saga. It, 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 I mean, there's arguably no event and the ramifications of it has shaped us more than that. Um, and consequently, you have to have a good idea for a book, and as we speak, I don't have a good idea for a book, uh, you know, and uh, this is, I, I i like the book, um, and don't misunderstand it, I like the book because of the story. I was there, the heart, I hate to, but I, my wife and I were there it was in the february five years ago we we're in virginia for other things and i went out i wanted to see the you know i went to the mule shoe had been there in years and i said to my wife i said you know there's a good story here and to me i that's i like to be able to tell their story and uh that's why i like the book i think mm-hmm. because they told their story and i was just fortunate to be able to uh, be the one to the conduit if you will and uh so I'm looking for a good story at this time. So mm-hmm. I appreciate the question, but I, I don't know what I'm gonna do yet,
0: okay? Well, when it comes, I'm sure we'll be, uh, we'll be incredibly interested to hear what it is. Um, but yeah, I think that's one of the most beautiful things about this study is that you, as you say, you're that perfect conduit for allowing the soldiers to sort of tell their own stories of that experience. And it's an incredibly remarkable, haunting experience that they went through, and you do a <laughs> job of, um, of regaling a- that. Back. Um, I'll try and talk over the the dog that I. No, just- why dog? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she was but, good. <laughs> she was good for a good hour. Yeah, I'm sure we can yeah. give her absolutely. Um, well, everybody, thank you so much for tuning in again today. Um, and thank you, Jeffrey, for that really fascinating talk. Please remember that you can obtain signed copies of Jeffrey's book through shopvirginia.org. Um, and that I hope that you will all be able to join us for our next noontime lecture. Just to remind you, this will take place in the new year on January 19th at 6 p.m. in the Robbins Family Forum here at the VMHC. And it will feature Michael Lee Pope's talk, which is titled The Bird Machine in Virginia, the rise and fall of a conservative political organization. So thank you all for joining us. Enjoy the holiday season. Be well. And we hope to see you all very soon.